Good morning. So, as uh, Richard just said, we're continuing a series which we've called Journey to the Cross, and this series is all about um, it's all about preparing ourselves for Easter, which is actually coming really quite rapidly now. This is the fifth part of the series, and Easter's coming very quickly. But I, I guess we all have things in our lives that we prepare for. So those big events of life that come up from time to time, whether that's a wedding or a birth of a child or the first day at school or the first day in a new job or um, a significant birthday or you know, whatever it might be, we prepare for those things because they're important, because they're significant. So, uh, for example, my wife Suzanne, she started a new job a couple of weeks ago up in London. And so the week before, we both went up together to sort of walk the route from the station to the office so she knew how long it took and what the route was and she checked her contract, checked the start time, thought about what she might wear on that day. She was prepared for that first day because it was important. It was a really important event. Or, you know, when we had our first child, I mean, in a sense, nothing can prepare you for, for that upheaval. But, you know, we'd got her room ready, we, uh, we had talked to people, we had read books, we thought about names so that when we saw her, we were able to say, you're Anna. It's Anna. And so we were prepared. We were prepared for that event, a big event in our lives, because we do prepare for things that are important. And so this series um, and this period of Lent, however you might observe it or not observe it or, or whatever, it is all about preparing ourselves for the biggest event of all. Because the danger with Easter, because it happens every year, is over-familiarity and it stopping feeling like a big event, like an important event. And so this journey to the cross that we're on, it leads us through seven prayers using the book of Psalms. Seven prayers in the Psalms that are opportunities to reflect, to reflect on really the brokenness of our humanity, the brokenness of our world, um, but also to reflect on the hope that we have. I mean, just as today, the clocks have gone forward, and if anybody walks in an hour late, don't make them feel bad. But... Um, you know, the clocks go forward and, and it starts to feel a bit lighter, brighter, everything feels a bit more hopeful. So we also have a chance to reflect upon the solution to the problem, the solution to the brokenness in, in ourselves and in our world. Uh, and that is that this story has a great ending. It has a, an amazing ending of restoration and reconciliation because of what happened at that first Easter. So we've, we've talked about a prayer of confession and a prayer of thirst, and a prayer of seeking. And then last week, Sally gave a great word about a prayer of rest, and how we find rest in God, peace in God. But today we're looking at Psalm 98. Um, and we've called this a prayer for the world. Because it is important to not only look inward, uh, you know, in self-examination, see where we might have got a bit out of alignment with God and seek to address that, but also to consider what this means, what Easter means for the whole world. Because we know that the world is in a mess. We know that the world is not as it should be, that there is something that's very wrong with the world. I don't think that's a statement that's going to raise too many eyebrows. But the question is, what is the solution? What is the hope for this world? And I guess we would all say, Jesus. And you'd be right. I absolutely believe that Jesus is the only hope for this world. But this psalm, Psalm 98, focuses us in on a particular aspect of that, which maybe we don't like to think about quite so much. So let's have a look at it. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. 
The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. <laughs> it's a slightly surprising ending. We've got, we've got everybody singing and dancing, rejoicing, because God is coming to judge. Yes. They're happy about it. It's like God is saying, I'm coming to judge you. And they're like, way, wonderful, fantastic. We love a bit of judgment. It wouldn't be our natural reaction. Because we don't tend to think of judgment in particularly joyful terms. So uh, take a courtroom, for example. I don't spend a lot of time in courtrooms, but um, it's not a particularly joyful place. So I was on jury duty a couple of years ago. I didn't actually get to be on a case. I was a bit... There was a lot of sitting around waiting, but I did get into the back of the courtroom um, for the part of the selection process. It's just my number wasn't called out. Um, but, you know, just from being in there that, that time, you know that this is not a place of great joy. It's a place of seriousness. It's a solemn place. It's not lighthearted and joyful. And yet here, in this psalm, we have singing and dancing and rejoicing, first of all linked to something that God has done in those first three verses, but then linked to something he's going to do in the future, which is to judge, to judge the earth. And that comes at the end of the psalm. And so we're going to kind of go back to front on this psalm by first of all thinking a bit more about judgment, which comes at the end of the psalm, um, and specifically be thinking about the joyful promise of judgment and the problem of judgment. And then we'll look at the solution to the problem which we'll draw from the first three verses. So the joyful promise of judgment, the problem of judgment, and then the solution to the problem. So the joyful promise, the joyful promise of judgment, the fact that judgment in here, in this psalm, is portrayed as something which brings great hope and great celebration, and not just to people, but actually to the whole of creation, to the whole earth, the whole world. So we've got phrases in here like, let the sea resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing. And then Psalm 96, which very much goes alongside this psalm, that says things like, uh, let the fields be jubilant. All the trees of the forest will sing for joy because, because the Lord comes to judge. The Lord comes to judge the world. This imagery that we have in the psalms is, is, is talking about restoration. It's imagery of restoration, the restoration of the earth, the restoration of creation, which is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. It runs through the Old Testament, it runs through the New Testament. So, for example, Romans chapter 8, a very well-known chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. Part of Romans 8 talks about creation, and it, it talks about creation in terms of it waiting in, in eager expectation. It's a creation that is in bondage to decay. It's a creation that is currently groaning, but it's awaiting liberation. 
It's awaiting restoration when God comes. But then that kind of makes sense because what does a judge do? Well, a judge comes, he's, he's there to put things right. And in this case, it's about putting things right, including in the whole of the world, in the whole of the earth. But the images that we have in these psalms of rivers clapping their hands and uh, trees and mountains singing for joy, it's kind of otherworldly imagery that points us to something. I, I, there's a sense, of course, in which it's metaphorical, but I think it's a bit more than just metaphorical imagery. I think it points us to something that is glorious, glorious beyond our imagination. I think it points us towards a future uh, state of creation that is unlike anything we have ever experienced or ever seen. And so if you, if you think of something in creation that brings you a sense of awe, you know, something you've seen, somewhere you've been, that is just breathtaking, it's just, wow, I've just got to take this in, I've just got to look at this, you know, it's just breathtakingly glorious, breathtakingly beautiful, whether it's a sunset or a, a mountain range or a landscape or the night sky, you know, on a clear night, the night sky is just glorious, isn't it? It's majestic. There are some glorious things to see in creation, but I think that what this is saying in, the, in these Psalms is that what you see now is nothing, nothing compared to what it will be when everything is restored to how it's supposed to be. That the colours we see now will be that much more bright and vibrant like we've never seen before. That, that everything will somehow be more real. That everything will somehow glow more. Well, I don't know. It's beyond our imagining. But everything will be restored when the true king returns. It says, uh, shout for joy before the Lord, the king. This is about restoration when the true king returns. Now that's a narrative that is actually very familiar to us. This idea of uh, a king returning. How many of the stories we tell, the stories that are very popular in our world through the ages, revolve around this idea of a king returning? How, you know, there was a, there was once a golden age when everything was perfect and you know good and and just and happy, and then the king goes away or he's taken away or something bad happens and everything goes wrong. Everything falls apart. There's an evil ruler. Everything gets corrupted and dark, but then the king returns. And everything is restored to how it should be. How many fairy tales, how many Disney stories revolve around that theme, that narrative? Or think of Robin Hood. Robin Hood is all about the fight against corruption and injustice and the abuse of power by an evil king in awaiting the return of the good king, King Richard coming back. Or I'm guessing for many of us, we've already thinking of a story when I say the words, the return of the king. Many of us are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, either through the books or through the films. In the Lord of the Rings, you have this picture of the Shire. And the Shire is this idyllic, heavenly place where the hobbits live. And it's just, it's just wonderful. And, but then there's this great evil which is spreading through the earth and spreading corruption and evil. And it's threatening all of that. And in the story, Frodo has this vision of the Shire burning. It's on fire and people are in chains. And it's all got twisted and corrupted. But then the third part of the trilogy is called... The return of the king. And the evil is defeated. And Aragorn is crowned as the rightful king. And everything is restored. Everything is as it should be. It's a very familiar narrative to us. But why does it exist? 
Why does a narrative like that exist what, through the ages? Why does that resonate with us so much? Especially when the record of human kings and queens is not really all that great in terms of abuse of power and, and, and that kind of thing. Well, I think it resonates with us because deep down, every one of us, every human being knows that it's true. We know that the world is not what it once was. Uh, we know that it's supposed to be better than this. There's something that we've lost in our world and we want a way to get back to what it should be. I think every human being knows that, whether you're a believer or not a believer, every human being has that sense that this world is not as it should be. And so we're constantly looking for solutions to make the world better, to improve things. The result is usually that we end up making things worse. But the the more we think we can be our own saviors, the more apparent it becomes that we really can't. We are really not capable of it. So, for example, the human progress and technological advancements of the 19th century were supposed to usher in a a, a better, um, more enlightened, more peaceful world. But the 20th century was marked by bloodshed in all sorts of wars and our, our capacity to use technology to kill more people more quickly. Or we might look to political systems like democracy, you know, we live in a system of democracy where people get to vote um, and there are elected representatives, there's accountability, you know, and that's instead of having a, a dictatorship where one person gets to decide everything that happens. But we know that democracy is far from perfect. Uh, Winston Churchill was reputed to have said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. So he sees it as kind of the least worst form of government. Now, of course, there are many good aspects to democracy. Um, I think if you had ever lived in a country where you had a a dictator, you would probably welcome uh, democracy. Uh, Although, looking at the current political situation, you have to say it's terribly inefficient. Democracy is very inefficient, and you can kind of see how dictatorships emerge but democracy there are lots of good things about democracy it's there to curb some of the worst human traits so it 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 makes it impossible to have too much power it limits power it means there's accountability it means you you know you can get rid of somebody in power um it it means that you have the rule of law you enforce the rule of law which means it's not okay to go around killing people, or it's not okay for somebody who's in power to have people killed. So it curbs some of the worst human traits, which is a good thing, but it doesn't cure those traits. It doesn't solve the problem that that those things are still there in the background, ruining and corrupting our world. The point is, we look for solutions, but none of them work, and sometimes end up making things a lot worse. But why do we look for solutions? Well, only because we know that there's a problem. Because deep down in our souls, we know that this world isn't right. And what those fairy tales and all the stories are getting at resonates with us on a deep level because it's true. It's true. There was a king who ruled with wisdom and truth and love and power and everything, everything was perfect. But then we rebelled and everything went wrong and the world became a very dark place. But the message of the gospel is that the king will come back. The king is returning and he'll put everything right. He will restore everything to its former glory and he'll rule with wisdom and love and power and justice. That is the joyful promise, the promise of restoration when the king returns. That's the joyful promise. But there is also a problem 
And the problem is that the king who's returning is a judge. He's a judge who comes to deal with all the wrongdoing, all the sin in the world, and give everybody what they deserve. Now, that's a big problem for every human being. Because we all, we all fall short. Not only do we fail to live up to God's standards, we don't live up to the standards we set for ourselves. It's a big problem. And I want to suggest that the idea of God as judge poses a problem for us from a couple of different perspectives. From a worldly perspective, but also from a biblical perspective. So first of all, from a worldly point of view. I'm guessing that in your conversations with people outside the church, you know, as you're pursuing your bless, the blessed practices, all those names on the wall, you're praying for them every day, yeah? Pursuing those practices, praying for them, listening to them, eating together, serving them and sharing your story with them. As we continue to pursue those practices, I'm guessing that God's judgment doesn't feature very highly in your conversation. That you don't lead into a conversation with, by the way, God's going to judge you. And there's a reason you don't do that, and it's because it doesn't really win you many friends. Because people don't like the idea of judgment. Well, actually, I say that here in the West, people don't like the idea of judgment. There are many places in the world where judgment wouldn't be a problem at all. It wouldn't be an issue to talk about a God who judges, a king who judges. That would just be, well, yeah, and of course he does. In the West, though, with our kind of postmodern system, our is that judgment is a problem. See, one of the central parts of postmodernism is that the idea that all opinions are equally valid. And I could and I could go off on a rant right now, but I won't. Because it's patently obvious that that doesn't work, because there's a hypocrisy that is present within postmodernism of saying all opinions are equally valid, but I'm extremely intolerant of your opinion because you don't agree with what the populist view is. There's all sorts of things you could say about that, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. What postmodernism says is that all opinions are equally valid, and so there's no right and there's no wrong, and no one can say this is the moral standard against which everyone is judged. That's no, people don't like that. That's the theory of postmodernism. That's what a lot of people buy into. And I'm just going to show you an illustration of that. This, I'm just going to show you a video which is a few seconds of a conversation between Russell Brand, comedian Russell Brand, and Jordan Peterson. And um, Russell Brand, at the beginning of this clip, he's talking about how he thinks Jesus is depicted in the scriptures. So if you just show that, that'd be great. In the actual language, all he bangs on about is kindness, kindness, love, love, kindness, mm. kindness, love, love. Not in Revelation. Hmm? Not in Revelation. He's a judge in Revelation. What, and you still, you're still taking that as what? Books beyond the Gospels you're still taking as the word of Christ? Well, I'm taking them as part of the entire corpus of the story. Mm. I mean, the reason that Jung thought Revelation was appended to the Bible was because the Christ in the Gospels was aired too, too much, in a sense, on the side of mercy and not enough on the side of judgment. Because here's the here's sermon why. is there's important. A technical, there's a technical reason, though. It's like we don't want a judgmental Jesus. Well, you don't have a choice. <laughs> I mean, that kind of encapsulates the, that that mindset. We don't want a judgmental Jesus. And I love the response. You don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. But we don't want a judgment. Jesus is all about love and kindness. Judgment is somewhere over here. That's not part of that. Can't, can't bring judgment into this picture. We don't want a judgmental Jesus. Actually, I would suggest that you do. I would really suggest that you do. Um, and let me, let me explain that. Um, from a couple of points of view again, 
first problem is that postmodernism, particularly this idea of doing away with judgment, it's, it's, inco- it's intellectually incoherent, it's illogical, it doesn't actually make sense. So if, if one of the aims of postmodernism is to give a voice to the marginalised, to the unjustly marginalised, which is a good thing, but if the way of doing that is by saying, it's by doing away with moral absolutes and it's doing away with judgments, by saying, you can't judge, you can't judge this group of people, you can't judge someone as being wrong, you, you can't assert your opinion on them because all opinions are equally valid, so you can't do that. If you make all opinions equally valid, then you can't assert any opinion. So if in the interests of equity, and if in the interests of justice, no one is allowed to have the truth, then you can't define injustice in order to fight against it. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? You can't. And so the prevailing view in our Western world would be that judgment is opposed to love. Judgment, you can't, they can't have anything to do with each other. And moral absolutes are oppressive. And yet, at the same time, we need judgment and we need moral absolutes to be able to identify injustice. To fight injustice. To stand up for the unjustly marginalized, which everybody in the world would agree is a good thing. And the fact that we see some people as being unjustly marginalised points to the existence of moral standards to be able to say, but that is unjust, that doesn't meet this standard. It points to the existence of moral absolutes. So there's a big intellectual, logical problem with, believing, with, with not liking or not believing in the idea of divine judgement. It doesn't stand up. There's another big problem though. Because when you are wronged in some way, when you experience human violence against you, whether that's physical violence or emotional violence. Okay? When you experience some form of human violence against yourself or against somebody you love, and there are differing degrees of that, of course. Somebody can say something nasty to you or somebody could hurt you very seriously. Your natural reaction to that is anger because of the sense of injustice, again, which points to moral absolutes. It's a very natural reaction to be angry because you feel like you've been violated or or on behalf of somebody who's been violated in some way. It's a very natural response. But then you have a choice of what to do with that. And your choice is either you retaliate and you kind of perpetuate the cycle of violence. And again, differing degrees of that. It could be you just shoot a comment back. But in more serious terms, somebody's done something really terrible and you go and kill them. You retaliate and you perpetuate the cycle of violence or you choose to forgive and let go of that anger and end that cycle of violence. But the only way you can possibly do that, particularly in a very serious case, if something serious, so Miroslav Volf, a theologian, he always refers back to the time in the Balkans when there was terrible, terrible things going on. And he says, you know, if, if your sister has been raped and your mother has been killed and your father has been tortured... What are you going to do? You, you, want to, you want revenge on those people. You're going to want to go and kill those people who did that. The only way you could possibly ever forgive something like that and let go of anger would be to have an assurance that the person won't get away with it in the end. Actually, to have an assurance that nobody gets away with it in the end. To believe that there is a judge who will see that all things are put right in the end. And also that you are not that judge. Because you don't have the knowledge to know what that other person deserves anyway. You might think you know what they deserve, you might think you know what you'd like to do to them, but you don't actually have the perfect knowledge to know what actually is just for that person, what represents justice, but there is one who does. 
And he's the one who at the end of the Psalm 98 says he will come and judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. He knows. He knows what justice is. He knows what people deserve. You don't have the right to give the other person what they deserve unless you're prepared to be judged for every wrong thing that you have ever done as well. For everything that you deserve. We don't actually have a problem with justice and judgment. We do when it comes to ourselves. We want justice for others. We don't want it for ourselves. You don't have the right to give the other person what they deserve, but there is one who does. You actually have no solution to the problems of human violence and injustice without a belief in a divine judge who will one day put all things right. So people have a problem with God's judgment from a worldly perspective, although I think it's a very flawed perspective. There is also a problem, though, from a biblical perspective. Because we as Christians, as people who believe that the Bible is the word of God, we can also find it very difficult sometimes to reconcile judgment with love. We can see it as polar opposites, two ends of a spectrum. And, and so, you know, when we, when we read in the, New, in the Old Testament, for example, moments where God's judgment breaks out, and it's shocking for us, the flood, or the conquest of the promised land, where there are some truly horrific and gruesome things described. And that jars with us. We don't feel comfortable with that at all. We don't find that easy uh, to read because it doesn't kind of fit with our picture of what a loving God looks like. It doesn't seem to match up. Or again in the Old Testament, we read God about God saying things to Israel like, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. I will bless you. And then in other places saying, but if you break the covenant, I will turn away from you. I'll turn you over to your enemies. I won't be with you. You'll be cursed and not blessed. And we find that difficult. It seems to be irreconcilable in our minds. Will, will God give up on them? In which case, where is his love and faithfulness? Or will he give in and let them off? In which case, where is his holiness and his justice? Is God mainly loving and faithful? Or is God mainly holy and just, because the two seem incompatible. A God who has sworn to, to bless this people and a God who has also sworn to not bless a disobedient people. So the dilemma is this. If there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? How will anything be put right? But if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for you and me? Because we all fall short. We've all done wrong. We all deserve judgment. Well, the solution to the problem is linked with the first three verses of Psalm 98. So let's have another look at those. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So this is talking about something that God has done in the past. The rest of the psalm turns to rejoicing because God is coming in the future, but this is about a past event where God has miraculously rescued Israel, miraculously worked salvation for Israel. And there's some speculation about what that actually is referring to, but a, a likely candidate is the Exodus. The Exodus, when Moses led Israel out of Egypt. Because there are a few echoes in this psalm of the song that Moses and Miriam sing in Exodus 15. Because they also sing of God's right hand. They sing of his power. They sing of his salvation. 
And there are, there are cross, there's a, some cross-referencing between this psalm and Exodus 15. So it's likely that Psalm 98 or parts of Psalm 98 are referring to and echoing that song of salvation in Exodus 15. Now what happened in the Exodus is that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt through judgment. So the angel comes, the angel of death comes in righteous judgment and the firstborn in every Egyptian household dies. This this judgment harks back to the beginning of the book of Exodus where Pharaoh has been ordering that all the Israelite baby boys are killed. But it happened in the Egyptian household. Now, did that just happen in the Egyptian households because they were the baddies and the Israelites were spared that judgment because they were the goodies? No, that's not what happened at all. The Israelites were not immune from that judgment because every human being deserves judgment from God. We all deserve to be wiped out. Now what happened is that the Israelites had to, each household had to slaughter a lamb, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without defect, had to be slaughtered and the blood, some of the blood had to be put on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses so that the angel of death would see the blood and pass over that household And the Israelites for that moment would be spared from that judgment that was coming. But the Israelites had to take shelter under the blood of the lamb. The point is that no one can stand up against God's judgment unless there's a substitute. No one can stand up without a substitute. Now there's another song that is sung in Luke chapter 1. That also talks of God's salvation. Talks about the holy arm of God. And is also cross-referenced with Psalm uh, 98. And it's the song of Mary, after she finds out that she's going to give birth to Jesus, to the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is all linked together, the song of Mary, the song of the Exodus, with Psalm 98, because Jesus is the solution. It's only Jesus who can solve the problem of Judgment Day for us, because he is the eternal Lamb of God. He is the perfect sacrifice, the superior sacrifice. His blood speaks a better word. And when you, as it were, take shelter under his blood, under the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, the eternal Lamb of God, when you take shelter under that, then you are saved. When you believe in him and you put your faith in him and you put your trust in him and you receive him as Lord of your life, then judgment day, the judgment that is coming to you in the future, actually becomes something which has just happened in the past because it's fallen on Jesus. The judgment that you deserve for every wrong thought, every wrong action, past, present, and future, that punishment was handed out at the cross. God's righteous judgment was satisfied at the cross of Christ. It was John Stott who said that the essence of sin is putting yourself where only God deserves to be. In other words, in charge of your life. But the essence of salvation is God putting himself where I deserve to be, on the cross, under judgment. See, the the judge of all the earth, the eternal, glorious, holy judge, he declared the penalty and then he paid it himself. Jesus is the judge who was judged. And in that act of going to the cross... Jesus, he perfectly fulfilled both the law and the perfect love of God. See, God is not mainly loving and faithful or mainly holy and just. He is both. 
And he's both equally and both fully and perfectly holy, just and loving. And the cross demonstrates it. The cross demonstrates the perfect justice of God being satisfied. And it demonstrates the perfect love of God for you as he willingly took your place as your substitute and took the punishment for the sin of the world. Took the punishment for your sin. And the question is, do you know this for yourself? Have you received the salvation that God offers? Has the judgment of God that you deserve, do you have that assurance that that has been taken by Christ? Or, that, or will it fall on you on the judgment day that is coming? See, for many, judgment day will not be a cause of rejoicing and celebration like we see in this psalm. It will be a day of despair. You can't stand up under the judgment of God without a substitute. But praise God. Praise God that in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, he's provided that substitute. He's provided a way, a way for his justice to be satisfied and for his love for you to be perfectly expressed. And so my, my encouragement to you today, if you don't know that, my plea to you today, if you don't know that, would be to turn to him. Turn to that way that he has provided. Receive his salvation. Receive the freedom and the victory that he bought for you with his blood because he loves you. You know, this is not about trying to beat you over the head or, or scare you with the threat of judgment. No, judgment is coming, but focus on the love of God for you. The love that would move somebody to do that for you. The love of God that he would come for you, that he would come and die an agonizing death on the cross for you. It's because he loves you with a passionate, burning love that we can't possibly comprehend. But he loves you, and he's for you, and he gave everything to have you, to have you with him, to have you near him. And he gave everything to provide and pay for the solution to the problem that we created. So turn to him. Why would you turn anywhere else? Turn to one who loves you. Turn to your heavenly Father who loves you. Respond to him, receive him, know his love and his grace for you today and our response for most of us in here who know you have received it you've received his salvation you know Christ as your substitute you know you've received the love and the grace of God you have that assurance that the judgment that was due to you has already been paid it's already been poured out on the cross instead of on you well our response should be like the response we see in this psalm just joy rejoicing, joyful, exuberant worship through music, through songs, through our whole lives. Our response should be utter joy and gratitude that shines out of the whole of our lives. But our response should also be to pray. To pray for this world. To be a light in this dark and perishing world upon which the judgment of God is coming. To continue with everything we have to pursue these blessed practices with the people we have in our lives who don't yet know Jesus, those precious people that God has given to you, who might never hear about the gospel apart from you. Continue to pursue them. You know, we've not made a big thing of what you should do for Lent or whether you should give something up or whether you should do the 40 acts of kindness. What we would ask, though, is that you use Lent to pursue this, to have a renewed pursuit of bless, so that not, not just so we can see our Easter meetings full of people, but so we can see lots of people saved. God has said he has many people in this place Thousands of people in High Wycombe who don't yet know him, who he wants to save and who he will save through us. So let's pursue this with all of our hearts because it's a dark and dying world and people need to know the light and the love of Jesus. Because the Lord is coming back. The true king will return. He will come to restore his creation. He'll come to make all things new. He'll come to make this world glorious beyond our imagination. 
And so shout for joy to the Lord all the earth and burst into jubilant song with music. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy and let them sing before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Praise God for his salvation. Amen.